before he went to England, we as missionaries woke up at 5.30 in the morning and went to a 6.30 a.m. session at the Salt Lake Temple. And after the session, we all met in the priesthood room, and there were 289 of us. We were still dressed in our white clothing, and we uh, were pleased to have President Harold B. Lee speak to us. He spoke for several minutes. He had his scriptures in hand, and then he said, you have questions about the temple. We are in the temple. We could ask whatever we wanted uh, that, that, uh, that was appropriate. And so we as sisters and elders, all young, inexperienced, new at the temple, started asking presently questions. And what I found remarkable is time after time, he would say in response to our question, oh, that is in, and then he'd flip his page, that's in Deuteronomy, and he'd read a passage. That's in Isaiah, that's in Matthew, that's in Revelation. And he did that for several minutes. Uh, not only was I impressed with his knowledge, but I was impressed that so many things about the temple are revealed in the scriptures. And I really, really invite you to study the scriptures and study the living prophets and to learn more about the temple. And this reminds me of uh, something that happened in 1992 on BYU campus, here on campus. We had, we had organized a conference on ancient temples and we wanted two keynote speakers, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, to try to keep the audience present. The keynote in the morning was Elder Mary B. Hanks. And Elder Hanks was recently uh, an emeritus general authority, and more recently he had served as the president of the Salt Lake Temple. And he really understood uh, temple and temple doctrine, obviously. And the afternoon keynote was Brother Hugh Nibley. So here's the story that uh, Elder Mary D. Hanks told. And it was so remarkable that we, it is also kind of humorous that we, we published it in his article under his name. And Elder Mary D. Hanks, while speaking of the temple, he said this, there are only two that really understand the temple. And he said, one is Hugh Nibley and the other is God. Um, I found that to be remarkable. And Brother Nibley was a, a great temple scholar, well respected by members of the faith and members of other faiths and so on. And just a little funny note, uh, Brother Nibley, I was privileged to edit one of his books in the collected works of Hugh Nibley. And on one occasion in the, in the ballroom of the Wilkinson Center, he was giving a presentation. And I was sitting next to him and I, I said, anything I can get you before you give your presentation? He said, yes, I would like some water, please. So I ran over to the cookery, got him a water, brought it back. But in the meantime, I said, will you sign this book, your book that I edited, will you sign it for me? So I gave him the water and he handed me the book and it said this, to Don, thanks for the water, Hugh Nibley. <laughs> and I, I was hoping he'd write something profound, and I guess that was profound. So, Brother Nibley had a remarkable sense of humor that a lot of people don't know about. Now, we're going to talk about the temple again, but we're going to talk about one item that was stored in the most sacred spot of the temple, the Holy of Holies, in the most sacred pieces piece of furniture, and that's the Ark of the Covenant, and that's Aaron's rod. It was stored in the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of the commandments and with a bowl or jar of manna. These are three remarkable things that all testify of Jesus Christ in some way or another that were found in this most sacred spot in the temple. So let's look at Aaron's rod. Before we look at it, I need to teach you something about symbols. Uh, symbols bother a lot of people, and, and they just uh, don't understand symbols and how they work. First, I'm going to give you a biblical Hebrew 
lesson. I'm going to do it in about 60 seconds, and you will be tested before you can leave the Marriott Center. So we'll look at this, Genesis 1-1, as a sample. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In Hebrew, they put words together. So in the beginning is one word, the heaven is one word, and the earth is one word. They put them all together. They don't use vowels in ancient Hebrew, so you have to read this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. They don't have uppercase, uh, so God is in lowercase, and they don't have punctuation, so you have to take away the punctuation. You read it backwards. So look at this from right to left. Uh, actually, English is backwards, Hebrew is correct, but a lot of English speakers think that Hebrew's backwards, and they say Hebrew's backwards. But Hebrew's been around a lot longer than English. So read it from right to left. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Everyone fine so far? And then the next thing is you have to learn new words and a new font. <laughs> so in Hebrew, it's Bereshit bara Elohim. Elohim is the word for God here. It's the third word for the right. Et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. So that's your Hebrew lesson. Come take Hebrew from us at BYU. Now, symbols. Uh, Elder Holland, Jehovah used an abundance of archetypes and symbols. An abundance. Indeed, these have always been a conspicuous characteristic of the Lord's instruction to his children. Examples of those figures, especially prefigure figurations of Christ, are present throughout the pre-Messianic record, meaning the book of Moses, Abraham, and the Old Testament. Moses, like Isaac, Joseph, and so many others in the Old Testament, including females like Hannah, Abigail, and Eve, uh, was himself a prophetic symbol of the Christ who was to come. There's another one. This is from 2 Nephi 11.4. Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. It's interesting he says the truth versus just the coming of Christ. Apparently, there were mistruths around at that time. Can't imagine. And all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Notice it says all things, and I've underlined them. Not some things. But notice also it has to be given of God. So if it's man-made, uh, you can't count it as a, uh, as a type of, of Christ. And so I want to tell you how difficult it is to understand symbols. Then we're going to look at the symbol of the rod of Aaron in just a minute. Uh, one of our daughters, uh, when she was about four, we were having a family home evening, and we taught her and other children about the, the emblems of the sacrament. The bread represents Jesus' flesh, his broken flesh. The water represents his blood. Um, I failed as a teacher to my own daughter. The next Sunday, she didn't partake the sacrament. And the next Sunday, the third Sunday. And she's four. So I quietly at home later, uh, why aren't you partaking the sacrament? I noticed that. And when she's four, I know it's not because she had committed a bunch of sins and been in to see the bishop and so on. And she said, well, Dad, I don't want to drink blood. So she took that symbol as literal. When I was trying to explain it as a symbol, I had failed to explain it properly. I want to tell you there's a, a brother who I home taught in 1989, faithful member of the church, and I had a lesson home teaching lesson on symbols of the temple, dealing with appropriate symbols that I could talk outside the temple. And he told me at that time in his home, I don't believe there are that many symbols in our temple. Now, if you're here last hour, I gave you a quote by President Nelson that said, that's just the way God teaches with symbols. So Brother Gardner said that, and I thought, okay, uh, no problem. Uh, I saw him about 20 years later when I when he was not I moved from the, the ward um, and he was then going to the temple four endowments per day he was a widower and he'd go four endowments per day and then come home that was his life after he lost his wife 
rather than watch cartoons or watch TV or sports or other things. Uh, not saying that any, any of that is bad, but he went, he chose to go to the temple. And I passed him somewhere, and oh, hi, Brother Gardner. And uh, he said, you remember that lesson? I, oh, yeah, 1989. Yeah, I remember it. He said, the temple's filled with symbols, and now I understand them. So I just keep that in mind. Here's a passage that one time I took 20 minutes to explain, and I'm going to do it in about 90 seconds, and explain it. And behold, meaning, and pay attention, all things, notice that thing, all things that we saw in the other passage, have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, Jesus Christ. And then he explains both things temporal, things spiritual. Then he explains things in the heavens, things on earth, things under the earth. And then he says, all things bear record of me. So that when he says all things bear, bear record of me at the beginning and the end, the, the literary name for that is enveloping. It's a literary thing, and it's for emphasis. He's repeating it, repeating it, repeating it twice. So, with that in mind, uh, here's here's the two I gave last hour. Uh, President Nelson, I'll be quick here. God's ways ancient, rich with symbolism. Elder Whitney, God teaches with symbols. It's his favorite way of teaching. And if you look at all the ordinances, look at every ordinance, it has a symbol, a symbol or symbols. Every ordinance, just think about those. Temple, baptism, sacrament, other ordinances. Now the words type and shower, shadows are the scriptures. Those are scriptural terms. So it's not a term that we as scholars are superimposing on, on the scriptures to understand them. Shadow, type, look at Mosiah. And many signs and wonders and types and shadows showed he unto them concerning his coming. Now I'm leading up to this. Here's shadows. What does it mean, shadows? It's easy. You know what a shadow is. Here's four examples. So I'm going to tell you something now, and I don't want you to be alarmed or misunderstand me. The airplane is the shadow typifying or pointing, pointing to Christ who's the actual airplane. So Moses is the airplane, Eve, Abinadi, Job. They're the shadow of the real thing, not the real thing, but uh, uh, the thing that made the shadow, Jesus. Now I'm not saying Jesus is an airplane, don't misunderstand me. Uh, in the 1980s, I taught, uh, in my stake, I taught the stake presidency and the high counselors every other Sunday at 6 a.m. lessons from the scriptures. And once I was teaching about Christ as the waters of life, after I taught, one of the brothers came up to me quietly, so he wouldn't embarrass me, and said, Brother Perry, sorry, Jesus wasn't waters. He's a real person. And, and so you have to understand, we're talking symbols here. I know Jesus wasn't water. That's a symbol that points to Jesus. It's something dealing with his ministry and his atonement. So this is shadows. I hope I explained that well. And maybe I didn't. I tried. What are types? Types comes from the Greek word. If you have a, a hard instrument, like a hammer with a waffle edge to it, a 20-ounce hammer, and you hit a piece of wood, it'll make that impression in the wood. Um, so you have a typewriter and you have types. And, and those all make impressions. So on the right-hand side, if you have a T on a typewriter, you push T, and there's a ribbon and paper, and you have several Ts. So the, the archetype, the head type, is Jesus, but you have all these symbols or types and shadows that point to him. Not only prophets and, and uh, mighty sisters, but you also have the Day of Atonement. It has prefigurations, Leviticus 16, that point to Christ. You have the Passover in the Passover land, Exodus 12. And other things point to Jesus, the altar of sacrifice. So I'm trying to set this up. Uh, this is a famous type. It's Israel and the fiery serpents and the brazen serpent. Just, brothers and sisters, just peek. Just look at this serpent and you will live. You've been bitten by a poisonous serpent. All you have to do is look. 
No, that's too easy. I'm not going to look. I'd rather die. And as Moses lifted up the breaking serpent in the wilderness, even so shall he be lifted up who should come. And as many as should look upon that serpent shall live, even so as many shall look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live, even unto that life which is eternal. So the brazen serpent was pointing to Jesus. Look upon him with faith, and you will live eternally. Now, some people are bothered by something sacred items, like a rod of Aaron. Uh, why does God use a rod? Here's some examples that I threw together just this morning. Urim and Thummim. Why did God need a Urim and Thummim anciently with prophets? Why did Joseph Smith need a Urim and Thummim? Why was Elijah's mantle so powerful? He took it and he struck water at the Jordan River and it split. And then he walked across on dry land. Coming back, Elijah, his successor, did the same thing with the mantle. Why did they need a mantle? Why not just say, separate to the waters? Sacrificial altar, incense, Paul's handkerchiefs, Ark of the Covenant, um, the showbread, white stone, sacrificial animals, anointing oil. Why, temp why physical, tangible things in the scriptures? Why sacrament bread and water? Why the high priestly blessings? So God does use those, that's my point. So now let's get, get to this. Notice Psalm 23, Psalm 23, one starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. And then verse, uh, this is verse two or three. So to the Lord, thy rod and thy staff. So, oh, a shepherd had both a rod and a staff. What's going on with that? That's a little awkward. So the shepherd in the picture here, he's got a rod. A staff is what he used to support himself as he negotiates through the rocks and climbs cliffs. Now I do Dead Sea Scrolls research at BYU professionally, and so I've been to Qumran when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by a shepherd. And if you've been on site there, there are lots of boulders and rocks, and he was with his sheep when he discovered the, the first set of scrolls from cave one. So a shepherd has a staff to, to, uh, as a third leg. He has a rod also to discipline the sheep, to count them when they go in the sheepfold and for other purposes, and to guide them. When I say discipline, that came out wrong. I don't mean to strike them. A shepherd would never strike them. But maybe to guide them, if it's going this way and you want it to head to the sheepfold, maybe you gently touch its neck this way. So they had a rod in the staff, but we're going to talk about a rod. Now, I googled Aaron's rod, and this is what I came up with. And it's a little dangerous to uh, Google things, but I, I was, um, you always have to be careful and so on, but this one was a safe one, and so I came up with Aaron's hot rod. So. <laughs> All right, let's find out about the rod. So follow along with me. We're going to read from the scriptures. There's these three, Korah, Dathon, and Aviram, plus 250 rebels sought the priestly offices. Remember, only Aaron and his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons for 1,300 years could go into the temple. So the other Israelites, other uh, 11 tribes, and the, the Levites who worked from the family of Aaron and all the sisters probably said, what's going on in the temple? Why can't we go? For 1,300 years, they couldn't go. As you know, now in our day, the full temple blessings go to sisters and brothers, and sisters and brothers have priestly ordinances, washington anointings, priestly uh, sacred vestments. All can go into the celestial room, all together, and so on. But they were seeking it, priests, so that's what this whole thing is about. Earth swallows three rebels and their families. That's how, that's the reaction. Fire from heaven uh, consumed the 250 rebels. Now, if you can get your youth to read the Old Testament end, end to end several times, then they'll understand better how God operates with humans. 
and humans who are transgressors and so on, and how he, uh, he says, come unto me in the Old Testament. There's probably more come unto me and return to me in the Old Testament than the other scriptures. But they, they just see this, the, this. They say, wow, God's hard. Israel murmurs against Moses and Aaron for killing the people. What's going on? They had a righteous desire. They wanted to have the priesthood so they could go to the temple. What's wrong with that, Moses? The Lord plagues Israel and 14,700 die. The Lord commands Moses, and here's how he's going to handle them. Each of the 12 tribes have a rod. The, pre, the tribal leader had a rod, uh, maybe with his name on it. So think of the 12 tribes of Israel, and think of Genesis 38, Judah and his rod, the Tamar story, which is amazing. So uh, each of the 12 tribes take a rod, one rod for each of the 12, and write the name of the tribe on each of the 12. So Gad and Reuben and Simeon and Joseph and so on. Then take the 12 rods and go into the Holy of Holies. Now only Moses could go in the Holy of Holies, or the, because he held the Melchizedek priesthood, or the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. The high priest could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16. So take the 12 rods in the Holy of Holies. Now the story also all, all, all of a sudden has a, a temple element. And then this is what the Lord said. The man's rod whom I shall choose will blossom. So you'll take this dead stick, put it in the Holy of Holies, go get it in the morning, and it'll have a blossom on it. And, and, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings. So, on the morrow, Moses went into the uh, temple, tabernacle, the rod of Aaron to the house of Levi. So one family from the tribe of Levi was budded. And it brought forth buds and bloom blossoms and yielded almonds. It was a little almond tree. This little stick became an almond tree. Now I want to go back and tell you, uh, look at number eight. The man drawn whom I will choose will blossom. This is a gift from God. He always just gives us more than we deserve. So take those in, Moses, and I'll have one rod blossom. But look, when he brought it out, not only did it blossom, but it had buds on it, and it had almonds. I'm going to show you pictures in a minute. But first, and the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die. We perish. We all perish. This God know, knew what to do for Israel, who is rebelling and murmuring. Let's go back a bit, see what happened. Uh, number, number two, the earth swallowed the rebels and their families. Israel says nothing. Oh, okay. Fire from heaven consumed 250 rebels. Israel says nothing. Um, the Lord plagues Israel and 14,000 die. Israel says nothing. Come out of the temple in a rod that has buds, blossoms, and almonds. Israel says, we're goners. We all perish. You find this to be amazing? God knew exactly what to do for Israel that would convince them. Take an old stick, bring it to life, but make it an almond tree. I'll tell you why an almond tree in a minute. Why not an apple tree? How about goldilish? How about cherry trees? Uh, cherries and so on. So here's almond. This is what it looks like with buds. This is when the bud turns to blossoms. This is an almond branch with almonds ready to harvest. So this dead stick had all three of those at once. The miracle of the rod had budded, blossomed, and bore almonds all at the same time. This was a great sign to Israel. And remember, this rod later would go into the Ark of the Covenant for, I, I, we don't know, centuries. Now, here are two artist renderings of Moses presenting the rod to Aaron and the reactions of the other tribal leaders. I found another one, but it's too cartoonish, so I... It's hidden. You won't see it. Some, 
Okay, the rod is a symbol of the tree of life. The rod's a branch from the tree. Jesus is the branch. It was stored in the ark, as I told you. This is the Ark of the Covenant made by President Jason Cotter and his team in um, Meridian North, stake of Idaho. So the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, take the lid off. You see the tablets. You see the rod of Aaron, and you can barely see the, um, the bowl. You can't even see it in your picture. Sorry about that. But it's stored in, in the Holy of Holies. So here's one of the symbols of Jesus that you might have missed in your study. There's a Hebrew word, shaked. Shaked means almond or almond tree. Now in Hebrew, a lot of the words are, and remember, I teach biblical Hebrew at BYU. So someone might say, well, how do you really know this, Brother Perry? Well, this is what I teach uh, for the last 30 years. Shaked has a special meaning that suggests the resurrection. The Hebrew word for almond and almond tree is shaked, and the verbal root denotes to wake up early because the, the almond tree is, quote, so-called from its early waking out of winter sleep. The almond tree is the first to wake up after the winter. It's the first to blossom, and it does so before peach trees and, and apple trees and, and so on. And, um, so as an almond tree, remember, we read a passage. We read two. All things typify Christ. So here's a good exercise for you. All things created of God. So it has come from God. Sometime look around the natural world and say, how does that typify Christ? How does this and how does this? Now, I'm going to change for just a little bit, bit and tell you something here. In my opinion, in my research of ancient temples, the rod of Aaron is so powerful of a symbol, and it was powerful. Remember, it stopped Israel from murmuring, and remember, it's put in a sacred spot, that kings and queens from different nations had a special scepter, which is a rod of power an instrument of power like a rod. And here you have Queen Elizabeth II on the left. Uh, this is in uh, 1953, maybe. She's the present reigning queen. I think she's doing a great job uh, myself. Uh, but this is her younger days. She has in her left hand, cupped hand, an orb that represents the world. So she has so much power in the world that she can hold it in her cupped hand. And in the right hand, she has a scepter or rod of power. Notice Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth I on the right hand has an orb and her left hand is covering it like this. Rep represented the orb represents the world. So she has power. She has so much power she can hold it in her hand. And then the, the, uh, the uh, scepter in the right hand. I don't think I'm too far off here. This is a later, later interpretation, but I've got more. This is our King James who gave us the King James Bible, meaning he's the one who said, yes, go for it. In his right hand, it doesn't matter right or left, he has in his hand the orb, and it has a cross on it, and then he has in his left hand a scepter or a scepter of power. He has a king. Now there are several scholars, just so you know, non-Latter-day Saint scholars, who have studied ancient temples from the Bible and said kings and queens in Europe and other places have copied things from the Bible and from the temple. For example, Solomon, King Solomon, was an, uh, anointed with olive oil and we think he is washed at the spring Gihon. And when he was, uh, after the anointing, the people shouted out, God save the king, three times. When Queen Elizabeth, and I studied her coronation and watched part of it, part of it's in black and white from 1953, after she was anointed, and they put a canopy over that. They didn't show that on the TV. But she was anointed. 
And after she was anointed, and after the coronation, people yelled out three times, God save the queen. And there's a great Jewish scholar named Raphael Patai. And it's not Raphael, Raphael after the Ninja Turtles. Some people want to know. And he wrote a, a great article um, that I read years ago. I think it's called Hebrew Installation Rites or something. And he showed how uh, modern and pre-modern kings and queens borrowed and copied things from the ancient temple to include in their ritual. So the queen on the left had uh, two or three robes she's put on at different parts, sacred robes as part. <coughs> Not going backwards. So notice the crown is after the high priestly crown. That, that's what some scholars say. I'm just telling you what some say. Now, I don't know about this. I don't want to offend anyone. Some say that the water witching, witching rod, and I studied this a little bit, and I don't fully understand it, and I know some people still use it, and, and some, someone can explain it better than me, and I might get it wrong, but some say they use this, and, and somehow it's, it uh, shows where they should dig the well and where there's water to dig the well. And they, they call it apparently a water uh, witching rod, but it's a, a, some kind of rod of power. Now, did you know there are three in our dispensation who had a rod that was compared to Aaron's rod? I don't know if you knew that. Let's first talk about Oliver Cowdery. This is a, a painting that was reproduced and it's found in the law school here at BYU. And I talked to a sister who studied um, garments and clothing from that period, and she said, this might be dark brown and not black. It looks like black in the, in the photograph, but it might be dark brown or dark gray. And she told me all sorts of things about his vestments that I found interesting. Oliver Cowdery, when I was growing up, I think I, I misjudged him. And on my way from Woodland Hills to Provo this morning, I was listening to, to the scriptures on CD, the Book of Mormon, and it's, it says, it has a great passage about uh, don't judge people. And I found I'm the worst judge ever. Usually if I judge someone, it's totally wrong. There's, I don't have enough information. So I think I learned something in seminary that was wrong, and I grew up thinking that Alfred Cadre probably uh, something is wrong with him. What's wrong with him? Why would he speak against the prophet Joseph? Why would he leave the church? But in my opinion, in my studies, whatever happened then, he's in full fellowship now. He's, he's a good guy. For some reason, I maybe mislabeled him. So notice these two scriptures. The first is from Doctrine and Covenants. Now, this is not all a gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. So notice the name Aaron here. So there's a tie to Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. What? What is this gift of Aaron that has told him? Behold, there is no other power, save the power of God, that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you, and you shall hold it in your hands. This is a little bit of a puzzle in our Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, what gift of Aaron did he have that he could hold in his hands, or is this some kind of symbol? So if you turn to the Book of Commandments, uh, 1833, this is what it says. Now this is not all, for you have another gift, which is the gift of working with the rod. So now we have a connection to, to the rod. Behold, it has told you things. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to work in your hands. So now it explains a rod. Now I've got more, more and more. And so I'm, I'm, I'm introducing this to you slowly. Brigham and Heber had a rod. Now you may recall that Heber C. Kimball served in the first presidency with Brigham Young. You may also recall that of the 12 apostles, these two did not lift a hand against the prophet Joseph. They remained steady and faithful and did not 
they, they did not leave the faith and did not speak against the prophet. Brother Kimball, this is uh, Sarah M. Kimball, showed me a rod that the Lord through the prophet Joseph had given to him. He said that when he wanted to find out anything that was his right to know, all he had to do was kneel down with the rod in his hand and that sometimes the Lord would answer his questions before he had time to ask them. Now, we'll come back to this in a minute. Notice this, behold, it has told you many things. President Young received a similar rod from the Lord at the same time. Notice they got it from the Lord. They claimed that these rods were given to them because they were the only ones of the original 12 who had not lifted up their heels against the prophet. End of quote. And I gave you the source here. It's kind of hard to find. Uh, if you want to find it, go to the church historical department. Go to D slash 909 and so on. Okay, now we go to the journal of President Heber C. Kimball. Five Friday, 1844, I inquired by the rod if the Lord my family was well. Five Thursday, prayer meeting in the afternoon with the 12. Went home and used the rod. I got a witness, Elder W. Willard, Richards would live, that we would overcome our enemies. And Elder Richards did live. One more. I went up to the Capitol in Washington, D.C. I see men and their wives walking out two by two. He went to the Capitol to try to find some justice for the church. And he's, he's there, he goes out, he misses his wife, he sees a husbands and wife walking, and then he says, oh, that I had my dear late with me. See, he's missing his sweetheart. Bless her dear heart and soul. I called on the name of the Lord. He heard me, for my heart was made comfortable. I inquired by the rod. It was said, my wife would come to me in the east, and that Congress would not do anything for us. Now, this is very interesting. You're getting into his very heart. I do not care whether they do or not. It is none of theirs to give. My Father in heaven owns it all, and he will give it too. So let them go to their own place. Good night. I must go to bed. I, I really feel, uh, uh, remember he, Heber C. Kimball was so close to the Spirit that he prophesied a lot to the point that Brother Brigham, who was the prophet of God, capital P, one, at one point said, Heber is my prophet, because Heber was so good at prophesying. And I want to share one prophecy in, in my studies that I found by Heber. There's this man who was going on a mission, and, and he was in the presence of President Heber C. Kimball, and President Kimball prophesied and said, you will receive a horse and a buggy to, uh, so you can go on a mission. And it was a prophecy. Then Heber said, after the prophecy, took the man out to the corral and said, here, take this horse, it's mine. And it fulfilled one half of the prophecy. Okay, I want to, to tell you about the water wagon. There's. Uh, the Rod of Aaron is just a glimpse. I also give a presentation at Education Week on many other parts of the Old New Testaments and the Book of Mormon. Uh, I, I present on Hebraisms of the Book of Mormon. And I have found 30, 30 Hebraisms of the Book of Mormon. Um, and I found, found them, this is years of research. Some other scholars have found many of the 30. I found some of the 30. But some of the 30 Hebraisms are found two or 300 times in the Book of Mormon. There's no way in 1830 could the prophet Joseph uh, have known and done research quietly in the back or gone to Harvard or some, some big university and done research and said, I'm going to put them in a book. There's no way, partly because some of the Hebraisms and by Hebraisms, I mean Hebrew-like phrases or Hebrew-like words. Some of the Hebraisms weren't even known to Joseph Smith 
or to the, the scholarly community until uh, um, decades later, and one or two until a century or two, uh, not two, but a century later. And I'll give you one example. This is a little side note that I want you to really know these things. If you knowledge is power, I want you and your children to know these things. Here's one, the name Alma in the Book of Mormon is a popular name, and it's a name of a male and another male. I don't know how many Almas there are in the Book of Mormon. And the name Alma, a lot of people teased Joseph Smith and said, you missed it, Alma's a girl's name. Here you have it, the Book of Mormon has a boy's name. There, you've missed this one. And, and poor Joseph took so many beatings, and later Latter-day Saint generations took beatings uh, unfairly because of ignorance of people. In the early 1960s, there was a great archeologist, also uh, a war hero in Israel. His name is Yigael Yadin, Y-A-D-I-N. And he was um, an archeologist digging in one of the caves of Israel. And it was not one of the 11 Qumran caves that yielded the Dead Sea Scrolls. In there, he found a papyrus legal document. The whole document is there. So we have the whole context. It's about that big. And I have a, a two or three copies uh, of it, written in Hebrew, so written right to left, no vowels, no periods and punctuation, but easy to read. It's a legal document. And it's it, in, inside, in the document, it says, it has the name Elma in Hebrew. And it, it, uh, even Yadin uh, transliterated Elma, A-L-M-A. How do we know it's a boy? It says, an Elma, the son of Judah. The Elma in Hebrew, it's a, the Elma ben Yehuda, an Elma, the son of Judah. Over 12 names found in the Book of Mormon have been found in seals, boule, or documents since the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Over 12 names, Ammonihah, Hagoth, Ahah, Alma, and others. So that showed everyone that Alma was a boy's name and that text dates to uh, 133-ish AD. So just be aware of these things, please. Now, just one, I started with Jonah. I want to tell you this really quickly. I'm watching the time, I'm aware of the time. Uh, Jonah, a lot of people through the centuries, and this, this, this is not attack, an attack on our faith, it's an attack on Jonah and the Old Testament, said there's no way a man can live in a fish for three days and three nights. There's no way that, that he wouldn't have oxygen, or the teeth of the fish, or whatever, or the digestive acids would kill him, or whatever, whatever. And there's research done that found that there were two men who, who were swallowed by fish and had lived two or three days. But both of those researches, and that's in the last 100 years, 150 years, showed that the story is made up. That go deep into the story, oh, someone made it up, a sailor made it up or something. So when you read Jonah 2, and you read it in the Hebrew, and you find out that Jonah was actually dead in the fish. And then uh, when he, he was spit out after three days and three nights, God brought him back to life. And that makes so much more sense. So the knowledge really is power to understand these things. There's a Hebrew word in Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 2. It's Sha'ol. Sha'ol. It's Hebrew. But Joseph Smith explained that is the spirit world, the world of spirits. And it talks about Jonah going to the world of spirits. And the non-Latter-day Saint scholars have always thought Sha'ol means death or hell or the grave. That's how the King James translators translate it death, hell, or the grave, but if you know it's the world of spirits, it just opens up the text. But there's other things there too. That also makes the type and shadow of Jonah fit Christ better when Christ said to the Pharisees, 
as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish, I'll be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So that fulfills it better if we know Jonah died. It also fits better when he was spit out near the shore and someone probably saw him and explains how he could help convert 185,000 people from Nineveh. It, it, uh, it makes the miracle because one of their gods, the Assyrians' gods, was a fish god. And if you have a female fish, and it's a female fish, we know that from uh, Jonah 2, spit out this guy and then he comes back to life, they thought it was their god, the fish god, making someone, uh, giving birth to a man. So they listened to him. All right, that's way off. I've got to tell you about the water wagon. Elder um, Boyd T. Packer told this story, and I'm going to liken it unto you and the, the Bible. And it goes like this. Elder Packer's wife, Donna, her aunt, I hope you follow that. Elder Packer's wife's aunt was in Brigham City, and I think they still have a celebration every year similar to this. And this was around 1905 or 1906. And the family worked and did their chores on the farm and then went into Brigham City to see this big parade. And they, they worked hard so they could watch the parade. And they went into the city. And as they're sitting there by the, the street, this water wagon, not this exact one, but one similar. If you look close at the picture, you can see water coming out the back. This water wagon went over the dusty road to um, uh, take the dust, uh, uh, moisten the dust, so that when the parade came through later with all the horses and the oxen and the carts and the wagons and whatever they had back then, when it came through, it kept the dust down so it wouldn't cover all of the, the spectators with dust. So this family watched the water wagon come through, the water, the water spread out on the dusty road, and then the family went home. And they said, that was a great parade. <laughs> they thought that was the parade. That these nice horses and a nice wagon and, and the, uh, the most recent advanced technology, water coming out of this water barrel in, in a wagon and wheels, it had wheels on it that probably had comfortable shocks for the driver and so on. So here's what I want to invite you, please, both with the temple and the scriptures, and not just the Old Testament. We've been talking about the Old Testament, but all the scriptures. I invite you, please, please, to study the scriptures and get to know the scriptures really, really well. Knowledge is power, and when you get to know the scriptures, and then if something comes up in your life, I someone else who's questioning something or questioning something President Nelson's doing, you'll have a bigger context. So I'm inviting you to see the whole parade in the scriptures and not just glance at it and see the water wagon. And I'm not quite done. I need to read to you what President Benson said. And this is, I, I've been speaking about the temple, the rod of Aaron and the Ark of the Covenant, and so on. This is President Ezra Taft Benson. And I need my glasses one moment. Okay, his mother was Sarah Dunkley. Uh, anyone remember, wasn't President uh, Benson from uh, Emmett, Idaho? Does that sound right? Okay. Um, her, her, his mother was Sarah Dunkley Benson, and he, he, uh, she tried to teach little Ezra, who later became a prophet, about the temple and its importance. So, so this will fit in with this. He said, oh, actually, uh, here he says, a young boy in Whitney. Now, maybe he was from Emmett, I, I don't know, but here, as a young boy in Whitney, Idaho, he was watching his mother iron her temple clothes with this old iron you put and make it hot, no electricity. 
Quote, I can still see her in my mind's eye bending over the ironing board with newspapers on the floor, ironing long strips of white cloth with beads of perspiration on her forehead. No air conditioning. When I asked her what she was doing, she said, quote, these are my temple, no, these are temple robes, my son. Your father and I are going to the temple at Logan, end of quote. Back to President Benson. Then she put the old flat iron on the stove, drew a chair close to mine, and told me about temple work. How important it is to be able to go to the temple and participate in the sacred ordinances performed there. She also expressed her fervent hope that someday her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren would have the opportunity to enjoy these priceless blessings. President Benson then explained that owing to the sacred nature of the temple, quote, we are sometimes reluctant to say anything about the temple to our children and grandchildren. Consequently, many people do not desire to have a real desire to go into the temple, or when they go there, they do so without much background to prepare them for the obligations and covenants they enter into, end of quote. Then President Benson says these words. I believe a proper understanding or background will immeasurably help prepare our people for the temple. This understanding, I believe, will foster with them a desire to seek their priesthood blessings, just as Abraham sought. So I wanted to share that with you. Uh, I think my own parents, uh, they went to the temple regularly. They traveled from Nampa, Idaho, or Melba, Idaho, to the Idaho Falls Temple, and they'd be gone one or two nights and then come back. It's about a five-hour drive. And about all they would say is, we're going to the temple. It's special. We love the temple. And, um, but I, I think now, um, Elder Bednar said, there's a lot of things we can tell about the temple. We can't explain explicit things about the temple, uh, explicit uh, covenants and wording, but there's a lot we can tell about the temple to prepare the, our children for the temple. So, dear brothers and sisters, it's been a privilege to be here. There are hundreds or maybe thousands of types and shadows of Jesus Christ in the, in the scriptures. All things typify him. So as you walk through this beautiful campus, look at the trees, look at the leaves, look at the roots, the grass, the soil, look at anything God made, the clouds and sea, how does that typify Jesus Christ? I know Jesus Christ is our, is our Redeemer and Savior, and I testify to you that he is the central figure of the temple. Him and his, capital H-I-M, he and his atonement are Jesus Christ-focused. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.